0: Hello and uh, good morning everybody. My name is Mike Crane. Welcome to Notes from the Hill. Um, I'm the author of Nature of Snowdonia and I provide training for uh, mountain leaders and mountaineering instructors. As part of that I host Upland Lives and each of these interviews is turned into a, a podcast and put on Anchor FM and all the usual podcast platforms. Um, you can see uh, this This will sit on Faces on note, Notes from the Hill for a little while as well. Anyway, this week, my guest is Andy Robinson, who's the CEO of IOL and the Lindley Trust. And some of you watching here will be very familiar with Andy and IOL and everything. And uh, I guess you're just here to hear some of Andy's news and his updates. But if you can just bear with us, because there will be a lot of people who don't know Andy and don't know the IOL. So uh, I am going to ask Andy to, to introduce himself from the IOL and, and just talk about some of the things he's been doing. So if you're just here for the Outdoor Education Update, just bear with us, we will get there in the end. So Andy Robinson, um, good morning.
1: Good morning. How are you today? Uh, yes, uh, as optimistic as I can be in these challenging
0: times. Excellent. So, of course, the question is, um, how do you come to be the CEO of the Lindley Trust and the IOL?
1: I guess my story doesn't look dissimilar to many people who are probably used to uh, watching your podcasts or listening to your podcasts. Uh, I, I fell in love with the outdoors and the mountains as a teenager. It was an escape, it was an alternative to being stuck at home with my parents. It was stretchy and exciting. Uh, and uh, uh, eventually it, it became a career when I realised that accountancy wasn't quite as exciting as my dad made it out to be. So uh, I, I got involved in what back in the 90s which was called development training. Um, uh, uh, and that led me uh, to working for Lindley Educational Trust. Um, uh, I, I did for a while ago, I uh, have a job in, in uh, a wider commercial professional services sector, mm-hmm. and uh, 11 years ago, came back into a industry that had a thing called the Institute for Outdoor Learning in. Now, when I was doing development training in the 90s, that didn't exist. I had to go to the Institute of Training and Development, now the CIPD, to get my professional recognition and to get my training in CPD, uh, and so I was quite excited. <laughs> by this new thing existing. Um, and for those of you who've not come across the Institute, it was formed just over 20 years ago as a consolidation of a lot of different organisations, uh, the heart of which was the National Association of Outdoor Education with roots back into the 60s and earlier. Um, so that give, that's a quick kind of, you know, what's- well Yeah, that's great. put the that.
0: So the IOL, Institute for Outdoor Learning, um, it's an amalgamation of bodies already, representing outdoor educators in, in a broad sense or, or in a narrow sense, you know, who's, who are the outdoor educators?
1: No, very broad. Um, uh, so well beyond traditional outdoor education, so rangers working for national parks uh, or national trust um, or wildlife and trusts. Uh, yes, folk within traditional education centers, um, freelance specialists who maybe focus on um, natural environment um, or, or adventurous activity participation, uh, and health specialists. So increasingly um, there is a need for uh, clear, carefully planned and delivered health interventions using what some of us may traditionally see as outdoor education models.
0: That's really interesting. And that process is continuing, isn't it, with the UK Outdoors Development, Andy? You're heavily involved with that too?
1: Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, the industry came together 20 years ago. That, As we know, there's a wealth of um, organisations in our sector, and it's reflective of what is, if you look at other industries, or the professions in the UK is a relatively young sector still, Yeah, you know, I mean, back, you know, this is, we're mostly post-war, aren't we, you know, so, uh, you yeah, we're kind of maybe 16, 70 years old, We've got a lot of organisations that were founded in the 50s and 60s, you know, uh, in, in the foundation, the roots of, of our sector. Um, and so it's taken quite a few years for that consolidation to happen and UK Outdoors is really the next step to bring together some of the larger member organizations that are focused on outdoor learning delivery. and those three those four organizations are the Institute, uh, the Association of Heads of Outdoor Education Centres, the British Activity Providers Association, and, and an overarching voice body that we all work through called uh, Outdoor Council.
0: Yeah, that's four too many. Sorry, Andy. (laughs) I like that. I like that. And does that parallel the Outdoor Alliance Wales? Because that's a similar thing or a separate thing?
1: So, so uh, there's a there's always a challenge when you start looking UK wide. Uh, You know, different legislation, different cultures, different approaches to using uh, the outdoors or to education devolved responsibilities to home nation governments. So the UK Outdoors is in a developmental stage. It's a planning exercise currently. And so to ensure that we try and get a UK place, we have representatives from Wales and from Scotland and Northern Ireland sat around that planning table. Uh, So, yes, so uh, some of you will know Paul Donovan uh, uh, wearing a uh, Welsh uh, alliance hat. And some of you may... Uh, no, Jane Campbell Morrison, we're in a Scottish uh, consortium at, uh, uh, she's Scottish Adventures Activity Forum uh, Chair, uh, and, uh, and from Northern Ireland uh, as well. So it, it's always a challenge, isn't it? But it, our, our uh, objective is to ensure that once you get to a UK wide perspective, it is appropriately informed and where there's a home nation focus, if it's in Scotland or Wales or England, it's supported and informed by what's happening in the mm, other nation.
0: Mm, mm, yeah, I, think, think. Um, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I, I often say that um, there's quite a lot of us make a good living on the hills around here. Yeah, if the government wants to talk about the hills around here, they talk to the NFU. So I'd love to see a day whereby the ministers who want to talk about the countryside talk to UK outdoors as much as they talk to NFU. So I, I can only see that being a positive move forward, but. What it's meant, Andy, is you have had to spearhead the the crisis there has been this year for outdoor education. I mean, coronavirus has obviously been a, a terrible business for a lot of people, but uh, an outdoor education is quite a small, relatively small part of that. I mean, it's a significant part. It's not, it's not tiny, but effectively. Outdoor centres are closed, outdoor education that's going on is is school-based, some of it's accidental, some of it, I'm sure, is well-planned. So can you give us a flavour of this year, what what it's been like and, and where we've ended up? Because oh, it's a mess, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's, um, it's difficult, and apologies if I get a bit emotional about it, because it's been, yeah. it has been. A really hard. Um, you know, there are very, very few... Um, commercial business models and sectors in the UK that have had to do what uh, the outdoor and world has had to do, which is effectively be told by uh, UK government or Home Nation government that residential school visits are not allowed, but not be classed as closed <laughs> and being able to access some of the initial funding that was available for closed sectors. So it really, really quite challenging. You know, you probably, some of you may have participated in some of the surveys that we've uh, undertaken of the provider organisations over the past few months. You know, it, it's clear that historically, we had a robust sector. Uh, and as I was saying to you earlier, Mike, 85% of the providers over the three years prior to COVID were producing profits or surplus. They were stable organisations. You know, uh, that is no longer the case. Most of those organisations have burnt through their reserves over the past twelve months, and many of them, you know, their income is very dependent on those residential school visits. You know, ninety plus percent in some cases. Well, anybody who's tried to run a business will know that you know, having less than ten percent of your income for twelve months or more is not a sustainable uh, recipe. Uh, you know, so we so begin to look at the impact. Well, the impact is a, a lot of the staff are furloughed. Some have been made redundant. Some who are freelance, and of course we have a great uh, tradition of uh, talented and experienced freelancers in, in the outdoors, uh, are, are delivering for Sainsbury's or whatever they yeah. want to do. Uh, to find themselves some alternative income because as we know the funding support for some of the smaller businesses in the freelance uh, world has not necessarily worked that well. Mm. So, Are you worried
0: about losing those people permanently? Do you think they'll come back?
1: I, I think we have a um, we have an existential threat to the infrastructure of uh, outdoor education. Uh, I really do. I think uh, we will lose some of those folk, um, they cannot afford to wait, yeah. I totally understand that. Uh, and we will also lose at least one if not two years round of recruit, recruitment of mm. new blood. Well, it feeds through, I've seen it in other industries, you know, if you don't recruit for a few years, mm. you end up with a skills gap, yeah. you know, and it has a really negative impact. And, yeah. So I'm not only worried about the freelancers and losing the experienced talent, I'm worried about the young talent not coming yeah. in at the bottom end.
0: So initially, <clears throat> we didn't know how long this was gonna last. Lots of centers closed, lots of trips were canceled, so on and so forth. Did, did you have a meeting one day? I mean, what, what did you do? Did you go in the office and, and make some coffee and just throw things at the wall or just cry? Or, you know, what, what <laughs> happened?
1: It, there was, this, I don't know about you. There was kind of a sense of denial. wasn't there, at the start. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. It's March, going to be all right. The new March normal. And, do you remember that phrase? Yeah. Yeah.
1: March and early April were a kind of uh, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. Kind of feeling and a grappling with implications and a and a sense of disbelief that it was going to be more than a few <laughs> months worth of yeah. inconvenience. Yeah. Uh, so we did, uh, uh, you know, wearing both of my hats, are, you know, getting to planning around, well, how do we get by for a few months? Mm. And I think a lot of people did you know, it was kind of a, okay, well, where are we? We're here in March. Let's say we're not going to be able to do anything else this year. Worst case scenario, we start again in September, just mm. right off the rest of this academic year. I think a lot of people did that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, and, you know, we were wildly, overly optimistic. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, that's made it a really challenging environment. It work. has. I think I think when we were told there might be a second peak, we'd
0: sort of think, well, well, well there won't be, because we know there's going to be one, so they'll stop there being one.
1: It'll be managed, yeah. No, but it's right.
0: worse. It's worse. So one of the things that's come out of this is the all-party parliamentary group for outdoor education. That's a new thing, isn't it? Is that something that would have happened? Is that a positive thing to come out of the crisis? How did that come about?
1: Um, Well, there's nothing like adversity to bring forward innovation, as there are to make things happen, and uh, it is it is due to uh, the the uh, push to raise profile and the impact of. COVID on the outdoor learning world, that we've ended up with an all-party parliamentary group for outdoor learning. Um, So some of you may have participated in the organised letters to MPs that we've done a couple of times over the of the pandemic so far, and we're about to ramp it up again. Uh, and I'll speak to that in a moment. But um, that, So effectively, uh, the North Wales MPs actually really stepped up to the plate, along with the Cumbrian ones. So uh, we ended up with um, a great piece of leadership from Robin Miller, the MP in North Wales, um, uh, supported by Tim Farron out of the South Lakes. Um, and then a, a wealth of other Plaid Cymru and Conservative MPs mostly um, who have centres in their uh, constituencies. And a, a lot of that is thanks to those of you who uh, sent those letters and emails to um, MPs over the past few months saying, look, we really needed to do something. We, we are going to be in trouble if there's not some organised valuing and supporting of the outdoor learning world. So
0: what do they do, Andy? Do they take the conversation within parties to, to government? You know, what, what is their role? So, so, so in the, an
1: all-party parliamentary group, its purpose is to uh, be organised by and work for the MPs themselves. Um, and so the idea is that those MPs can better understand whatever the topic is and in this case it's the adult learning sector and its role in UK society uh, and support it stand up for it influence others uh, who have uh, policy uh, impact over it um, so we've got uh, probably uh, uh, one of the ministerial team from the department of education coming to the APPG in a couple of weeks time oh
0: that's great
1: so it provides a vehicle that uh, the sector and individuals like Mm. like me or others who might be trying to represent the sector at Westminster can work with rather than trying to knock on a ministerial door ourselves yeah
0: yeah so that and that message to them is now changing isn't it because it was please let us run school visits we can do it covid safe to Oh, my goodness. We're not going to be able to run school visits till September at the earliest, maybe late summer if we're lucky. So has your message to to government changed? I mean, are you looking for further support from them?
1: Well, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that the uh, new variant and the thing that we're all now really struggling with. You know, I guess some of you watched the TV last night and saw the news that it's peaks not likely to impact the NHS until February. And, We've got all this baked-in infection, as the terminology seem to use now.
0: Lovely, yeah, oven-ready.
1: Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Back, back in the autumn, you know, we were looking at some uh, providers being in trouble you know, uh, because of the nature of their business or the level of their reserves or, or, or whatever it was. But, but a good percentage of the sector, if they were able to open in, in good time in twenty one. Being okay Uh, and so our ask was one of let us open and just give us a little bit of support essentially that's shifted and is shifting significantly to one of we're going to need some significant financial support even if we get to open uh, in April May now it seems unlikely that uh, looking at current infection rates um that we'll do much more than squeak open in April. Uh, The Department for Education have said they're going to review in February the position that the Minister stated back in November, which was, I'm minded to change the guidance for April 21. It, It doesn't, you know, it's very difficult, isn't it? We're looking. Really the challenge is we're planning for a position that is very different to what we're currently experiencing. Yeah, by yeah. April, May, June. We're in a whole new world in terms of impact yeah. of uh, vaccination and in terms of understanding of how we control transmission and deal with the people who have actually been affected. You know, and testing potentially. So all of those things will have changed by the time we get to a potential point of opening up the industry more. Uh, so very difficult
0: to plan. But even if we were able to run residentials from May and into June, that planning will be having to take place in schools now. And schools are clearly wrestling with a lot of other issues at the moment. And the thought, just the very thought of planning a residential trip in the summer for a lot of schools, most schools, it's just gonna be beyond the pale, isn't it?
1: Uh, it's very difficult. A lot of schools and a lot of providers are sat on bookings from April onwards. I okay. think I think most have managed to work out their position prior to April after that indication from Easter yep. back in November. Um, but there's still a lot of bookings being held open from April onwards, waiting for this February review. Um, not to say, as you say, the schools aren't absolutely flooded yeah. <laughs> with lots of other things and, and to add into the mix of visit. Uh, trip somewhere is just looks like one step too many for many and who would want to be a head teacher right now they're they're juggling so many balls just impossible isn't it Mm. so the outdoor
0: residential has been has been sort of the star player for a long time hasn't it that's been center stage and that's really what the publicity is about what we're shouting about but because our education is about much more than that outdoor learning is much more than that we know as a sector that we can provide good lifetime habits that will enable people to be fitter, to be healthier, just getting outside. If this will reduce the burden on the health service, if they're out in nature, it's proven time after time that that's good for mental health. How are we getting those messages? I mean, those messages seem to be there, but government doesn't seem to be hearing it, doesn't seem to be acting. on it. They still seem to be spending millions of pounds on tunnels under Stonehenge for example or railways from Birmingham you know what how do we get in the door with this?
1: Uh, I mean there's a few points to make here I mean one is the APPG will be very helpful in uh, the valuing of the full breadth of what there is to offer so 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 what is that full breadth I think that's worth just considering isn't it any of us who've spent any time in training or education or uh, uh, and most of us will have done even if we've only experienced it from the receiving end but i expect a lot of people listening to you mountain leaders mountain structures you facilitate other the people's learning and development we all know that single intervention strategies in helping people gain knowledge change behaviors develop habits of a lifetime are not <laughs> not the way to do it you know you need a progressive series of interventions to develop proper knowledge and to really change behavior. And so to only ever rely on a single residential trip during your school years is, is not a fantastic strategy for achieving those changes or for making the most of the potential value of the wealth of outdoor learning models that we know exist out there. So uh, that is gaining some real ground. You know, that concept of a journey through your informative years with multiple outdoor learning interventions coming from all over the place. And a lot of these, these are not, a lot of these are not new, you know, many of us. Probably were involved with scouts or guides or one of those natural progressions through our childhood, using lots of adults um, Mm. or or other organizations. And some of us may have been privileged enough to go to schools where they did multiple interventions. Yeah, yeah, maybe started something in the school grounds and something in the local comps or woodland, and you know, and you ended up going on an expedition Mm. abroad by the time you were in the sixth form.
0: It's, it's part of the role linking up those things and identifying that that's a journey, that's a line through from being in the playground in primary school to going on an outdoor residential or an international trip. Is that something that you're working on?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what, what we really want here is for all providers to think about what's coming before what's already happened when they come. And, and, you know, we don't do that instinctively. We meet up with somebody on the hill. We want to know where their confidence levels are. We ask them. spend a little bit of time just sussing out what they've done before and then you know how you're going to take them forward on the next few steps on their journey. And you're going to point to what they might do next, you know. And uh, there's real scope for that to become more built into what we all do. You know at a, at a both that individual level and when you're working with schools or youth groups or whatever other organizations you might use to get to uh, deliver benefits using outdoor learning uh, and it it's it does work some places i'm not saying this is a new concept it's really about strengthening uh, and and becoming part of the way schools engage with our sector, the way other groups engage with our sector, the way the, uh, the health service, uh, GPs, dreamscribing, prescribing, other uh, routes to engaging people with the outdoors, see the role that uh, experienced and qualified outdoor learning professionals can be used.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. I'm really, really excited by that journey because there is green prescribing now, isn't there? And I went to uh, a webinar about the Slow Ways Project, which again is another wonderful project that's going on. Uh, and then you've got the outdoor education line, haven't you? So it is that trying to see it's all part of a similar thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think largely there are uh, three big areas of benefit aren't there? Yeah, that you begin to think about where does it fit and at what point might people engage with outdoor learning to reach those benefits. And, you know, one's around the health and well-being, the lifestyles, the opportunity to uh, either start or develop healthy pastimes in the outdoors. Yeah. One is around education and development, you know, the skills, the development of understanding of self that comes from uh, going into the outdoors. And the, and, the, and the other for me sits around the natural environment, you know, not only an understanding of how it works, a pure science piece, but, but the development of pro-environmental behaviours, the values and the passion for the sustaining of the natural environment. And, you know, those are the, the, the three big ones for me. And then you begin to think about, well, what are the mechanisms for reaching them? Should it only be schools? Well, you know, I think we put a lot on those shoulders. We do, uh, we do. You know, uh, and there are many other mechanisms we should be seeking to develop uh, links with, you know, different community functions that would allow more people to engage with the outdoors. And, you know, there's some fantastic folk out there, I'm sure you would have interviewed, interviewed.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Who are
1: real community champions. You know, they might be supportive of their local school, but actually they don't rely on the school as the mechanism for reaching children and young people and getting them on the hill or getting them mm-hmm. out on the water or whatever it might be. You know. So um, I think uh, encouraging that to happen And as uh, UK Outdoors, as the Institute, providing support and mechanisms and enabling people to reach funding, develop qualifications, experience, understand potential delivery models and develop them within their communities, part of what we're about.
0: Andrew, we're getting to the end of our time. I'm just thinking we've got... I suspect most of you listen here are really committed to outdoor education. Is there anything they could, outdoor learning, I should say now, shouldn't it? It just seems to, it keeps changing the name. That's part of our problem, isn't it? Yeah. We talk about mountaineering on the hill and all that sort of stuff. So maybe, maybe language is one of the things we need to think about. But I, I, as a group of listeners, group of viewers, what messages should we be taking out? What can we do next? How can we help this journey become more mainstream?
1: Uh, well, I, I mean, the immediate is the is the need for uh, local MPs to be engaged in the challenge we currently have. Because although we just said outdoor education centres are not everything, they are a crucial piece of the jigsaw. And if we lose too many of them, we're in trouble. We will. It'll take us a long time to build back. And of course, it's not just about the infrastructure the centres big part of that infrastructure is the talent. Um, So ensuring that uh, those talented folk get support from their MPs is crucial. So there will be some uh, helpful notes coming out in the coming months for you to go tapping on that door to say, this industry needs help, it's really valuable. A lot of people take us for granted. You know, because you did it as a kid, and everybody knows it's a yeah. good idea. Well, sure, great, carry on. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so there is a real need to point to uh, with the MPs that there's also yeah, there's some real practical stuff we can all do um, around ensuring we understand where some of those ta- talented people are who may be struggling right now. You know, so there's some quite personal stuff around where are some of the outdoor instructors some of the other uh outdoor talented folk currently making a living or where are they mental health wise you know so i think there's a piece about the community just holding on and supporting itself because this it's clear now the second with the variation in the infections we're not going to get a a short-term change so we could well be looking at quite a few more months of needing to hang on in quite difficult situations. And I do know that some people were really focused on January as a big change mm. to their worlds, mm. and, and it's not going to happen. Uh, and so I, I, I would ask that we maybe just occasionally pick up the phone or, or check out where some folk are in terms of their own uh, mental health and wellbeing.
0: So make sure MPs know we're here, look after each other. Yeah. We are part of the solution long term. Definitely, you know, we have to be aware and ready for that, Andy. That's been really good. Thank you very much for talking to us. Did you want to add something else? I just,
1: I mean, I was just thinking, you know, that these times of change are an opportunity to look at what we normally do. You know, if I if if folk have got the time and the space, now's the time to reflect on what you might want to do with your world when we (laughs) get beyond this immediate place. So, I'd encourage folk to. You know, uh, reflect a little on the practice that they might have in a year to two years time.
0: Brilliant! Thank you very much indeed, Annie. That's been really, really helpful. Really, really interesting. I hope listeners have enjoyed that. Next week, I'll be talking to Paul Knowles. Quite a different Paul Hodges. Sorry, a slightly different field. Paul's the man who accidentally ended up owning the Moyle-Shabbard Cafe. So if you've ever been to the Moyle-Shabbard Cafe, next week is about finding out what it's like to be a cafe owner uh, here in Snowdonia. Um, There'll be a little bit of coronavirus inevitably because that's affected Paul's business. But really, it's just a chance to meet Paul. So if you've got any questions for Paul, you can uh, fire them into me and I'll look forward to speaking to you next week. I'm going to stop the live stream now. So thank you very much, everybody, for being with us.
1: Thank
0: you.